Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special and still very early on a Sunday morning mailbag edition. I am Scott Phillips, the Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer here in Australia. He is Andrew Page, not just the founder and managing director of strawman.com in Australia, not even in the world, not even in the Milky Way, not even in the galaxy. He is the universal founder and universal managing director, second to none. He is the boss cocky when it comes to this little business. This, let me see if I get this right, private online investment club hey. called strawman.com. G'day, mate. How He's are you? He's got it. He's got it. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> Ho- hopefully in the multiverse as well. I in mean, the multi- wanna, all the, all the parallel universes. Oh, the multi- <laughs> I like that. I like that. Uh, you even, you've got a little, you've got a little uh, what do you call those things? Uh, avatar ready? You've got your little straw man logo. You can make that a, a multiverse avatar and you can be there. Why not? Uh, uh, tangent, fine. Is multiverse ever going to be a thing? What do, you, what do you mean a thing? Is the multiverse going to be a thing? It is a thing. Didn't, don't you watch Doctor Strange? No, I mean like the whole Facebooky kind of, you know, metaverse. Oh, metaverse. Oh, metaverse. metaverse. I got my, metaverse. I got my, my M versus confused. I mean, I'm thinking about metaverse, actually. That's why I was going with Here's, You know what's interesting about that? Straw man avatar. It it's, it's, doesn't seem as though anyone can properly define it yet. Yeah. It's everything and nothing, right? It's not. It, it's, 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 yeah. What am I going to try and say? Mm. It's a big mm. question. Is is the internet as we know it likely to evolve mm. and become a richer, deeper, more yeah. immersive yeah. experience? Yeah. yeah, of course it is. Does that mean it becomes something new that we now term the multiverse? I, I don't know. That's that's the that is the hard part to it. And if it is a multiverse, is it an internal walled garden that is owned by Meta? Yeah, or is it something correct. That is that yeah. is more open source, and you know, I I I I don't know. I don't know. I am very bullish on the internet, as you know. I am. And I'm aware of that. Yeah. I'm aware of that. Yeah, very, very <laughs> bullish on the internet. Um, I, I hate the idea of the metaverse, mate, can I tell you? Not because I don't like the, I'm not, not doing the troglodyte back in my cave thing. I, the, it's, a, it's a marketing term, right? It drives me completely spare. Uh, you and I are talking on Zoom now. We're using the metaverse, if you want to call it that, to talk to each other. It's not hologram yet, but it's kind of like we're in each other's faces, but from 100 or so kilometers apart. Um, could we do that with VR goggles? I guess. But like, you know, is it is it really, is this not the metaverse and that is the metaverse? I, I find the whole thing stupid. Um, only, only because I just, I hate the idea of the, the marketing garbage that goes with it. You know, will we, eventually you and I will be doing Zoom and virtual reality. And it might be Zoom, might be Facebook or someone else's thing. And that's fine. But it'll be kind of a natural extension of what we're doing now. There's no, there's no kind of start gate, as you say. There's no single metaverse. There won't be one thing. Maybe we do go through one platform or something. I just, I find the whole thing really annoying because it's just, it's a marketing term to raise money for dodgy IPOs, not, not genuinely a technological break- breakthrough or revolution, right? Or not? Well, no, okay. well, uh, no, no, no. I, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to what you say. But it's uh, in terms of like dodgy IPOs. Well, it's, it's one of the biggest tech companies in the world has gone all in on it. Like yeah. Zuck has basically yeah. said, this is the future. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. On one end, I'm going to say, yeah, there's a lot of spin around it. Two, I wouldn't write him off so quickly. Yeah. I'm a little bit bearish on their attempt at it. I, yeah. I, I think, I think you might be able to make. Facebook a, a lot more a lot richer of an experience I, for me and as I said like everyone's got their own definition for me a true metaverse is one where uh, I control all of my assets ownership data and I can take them cross domain 
So I can take my online profile and I can jump into Meta's pool. And I can interact and do happen, all the mate. That's the point. Like it's just it's in nobody's interest. No, like, why, no. Like, it's, it's, that's what I mean. Like it, 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 in, in some sort of great, you know, <laughs> if if one company ends up owning the metaverse, then we're all screwed. But also, that's the only way it happens, right? Because you know, Facebook's right with Messenger, and then there's Snapchat, and then there's WeChat, and then there's whatever else is out there, WhatsApp, and there's Twitter, and there's and someone could try and combine all those, and there's kind of Google single sign-ons and Facebook single sign-ons and stuff. But it's just like it's it's literally nobody's interest to, to do that or to use someone else unless they've got no choice, users, right? Unless yeah, you've totally. got no choice, totally. right? I mean, so the, the internet is open source. The internet, yeah. anyone, no one can stop you from setting up a mail client oh, totally, exactly. like someone, exactly. right? So there, exactly. there might be some. I mean, here's here's the thing that I've learned with technology and, and mm. information technology mm. in particular mm. is it's just very hard to forecast. Yeah, so that's I, true, I think so. whatever we sort of say now, <laughs> yep. you know, in the year 2050, yep. people are going to listen to this, or if you know, historians dig up this podcast <laughs> and they go, "Oh, how cute that idiot! How Phillip. cute that you guys thought that." <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see a lot of stuff. I see a lot of stuff online. Yeah. Yeah. There's people tweeted out occasionally, like you'll see. I saw one the other day on the Today Show yeah. in 1996, and they were trying to oh, talk dear. about what email is and what the oh, app okay. symbol that's was. Because yeah, before yeah. email, no one yeah. used that on the keyboard. No, exactly. Right? Like, yeah, that's right. And and it just it's, everyone's in you know in hysterics about that's how nice, stupid right? they all yeah, sounded. Yep, yep, yep. And and it's just, but it's like well actually no at that place and time <laughs> yeah. that was actually a, a lot of people having that conversation like what yeah, what does that mean yeah, why, why would I, you use it yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly. Google the David Letterman Bill Gates interview from around the same era <laughs> and and even yep. Bill Gates yep. couldn't couldn't define yeah. what the internet was you know Mate, so um, the Motley Fool that, founders were on I want to say Oprah or one of those shows trying <laughs> to explain why people would actually use credit cards on the internet. And at the time, I mean, they, were, they were right in this case, but at the time it was one of those, well, who's going to use the cr- credit card? And you said, no, that's, no, no one's going to do that. Of course no one's going to do yeah. that. Of course we now yeah, know yeah. that, you know, it is, uh, so that, it is that, phenomenal. That's where I hesitate. So I, I think, well, I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for what you're saying. There is a, mm. and, and there, there is so many things that were going to be the yeah. next thing that never were. Yeah. And so you, you've always got to keep that in mind. But I just, I just be, I'm, I'm open-minded, yeah, I enough. guess, to the possibility that what seems impossible, unlikely, yeah. Even, you know, like, what's the point of it now? Like, yeah. our grandkids might be thinking, well, <laughs> yeah. it was inevitable. Not? Exactly, yeah, that's right, that's right. You know? Yeah. So, who knows? Oh, you know, who I'm knows? not even, uh, you're right. I mean, I'm in your camp of I don't know. I just, I find the current version of the idea. Honestly, mate, we should be scared as hell of a metaverse. If, if there is a single owner of the final whatever it is that we use, that should scare the hell out of us. Really, like I'm, yeah. I'm not a conspiracist. I'm not a big company suck. Like I, I own shares in Alphabet and what well, I don't own shares in Meta. I, I don't particularly love it, but I, I wouldn't be opposed to it for any good reason. Um, but I, you, man, I mean, if if, our, if we're that entwined and one person's got the key to that thing, be be afraid. Is all I'm going to say. It's a, it's a, it sounds like a scary, scary option. One let's of these days, let's answer some. I'm just going to say one of these days. Let's do a let's do a convo on Web three and Web five, and uh, that's <laughs> that's it's so it's, you want to talk about buzzwords and rubbish. Oh, there's a lot of it there, but there's also some interesting oh, nuggets of of potential within yeah. that. So anyway, a conversation for another day, <laughs> mate. Uh, let's go to the mailbag. Question from William to kick us off. He says, "Hi Scott and Ram. I've been listening to your podcast since I began investing." And it has saved me from making a lot of mistakes along the way. I look forward to your two episodes each week. Thank you, mate. I feel like I'm on track to give myself flexibility when I near my retirement age to have choices around my employment and lifestyle. Excellent. Well done. I constantly think of questions I would like to ask you guys, but this one has perplexed me for some time now regarding superannuation. 
I can't seem to work out how my Supra is tracking using online tools as they vary greatly. I put these numbers into three different super calculators, he says. He says they're not mine, so it's not personal advice, but gives a benchmark. Fair enough. He's put in a $200,000 super balance, income of eighty five grand a year, someone who's 45 years old is going to retire at 67. Now he says the below are the results. Australian super says I'll end up with $617,000. Industry super says $737,000. And Money Smart says $564,000. $1,000. Even if I do the same numbers with a compound interest calculator at 8%, it comes to $1.4 million. Even at 6%, says William, it's over a million bucks. Why is there such a big difference with all these numbers? Am I missing something? I'm trying to get a balance between my personal investing and my super, but this is presenting a challenge to that. Hopefully the above makes sense and you're able to give me and any other listeners interested the guidance on how to reasonably forecast our retirement super balance. Thanks in advance and full on. That's from William. I love this question, mate, because it's kind of that inherent uncertainty about the future, right? And three groups, by the way, he's used three really, really sensible, thoughtful groups, right? Money Smart is the government website. Industry Super, you know, I'm a big fan of not-for-profit super and Australian Super is one of those. But even, even Australian Super being a, a not-for-profit fund, an industry fund has a different number to Industry Super's own calculator. I will answer the first part of this question mainly because I did get a, a sneak peek at this one. It comes down to the assumptions. William, if you go into each of those calculators, uh, most of them have a, like a button or an option to kind of look at, look at the assumption. And it depends on what fees, what taxes, what returns, what balance, uh, sorry, what to mix of your fund, all that kind of stuff. So if you choose a, a you know an aggressive versus a conservative or, or even just different funds, use different um, mixes of even within balanced uh, balance isn't the same for everybody. Some have higher allocation of shares, some have lower, some have cash. Now, obviously, the fees are different. Uh, Money Smart is using a higher average fee because if they're looking across retail and not-for-profit funds, so it makes sense you would expect that with the same return, the higher fee drags down the return. So look, I'm not going to go each one of them, but that is the answer. I want to ask you, though, Andrew, feel free to add to that, by the way, but he just mm. says... Um, I'm trying to get a balance from our personal investing and super, but this is presenting a challenge to that. And then he says, hopefully, again, we'll be get some guides on how to reasonably forecast our retirement super balance. So that's where I wanted to start, mate. Mm. How, how would you go about, would you use one of these tools? Would you use something different? How would you go about looking at your current super and thinking about what it might look like by the time you retire? I'm a big fan of doing it yourself. Okay. Um, you know, there's so much there's so much online in terms of these calculators, but you know, <laughs> break out a spreadsheet. You know, who doesn't love a good spreadsheet, right? And and Google Google up some. This is what they call self-referencing bias, mate, just quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's such a worthwhile exercise yeah, it because it, it it it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it yep. says like it we take so much at face value with these online calculators. As you say, yeah. it's all on the assumptions. Yeah. When you're doing it yourself, you can at least know what those assumptions are. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, I think it shows you the sensitivity of those assumptions. Yeah. So not everyone is, I mean, I'm not asking anyone to work this out from first principles <laughs> and derive the compound interest formula, but Google yeah. it, right? And then you'll find <laughs> yeah, it. Right. You'll find the formula and then just, yeah. just build a very basic, you know, a couple of yeah. cells in a spreadsheet that, that, that'll calculate it. Mm -hmm. And you'll you'll see a couple of things that'll pop out straight away. And, and, and really, it's, it's going to be what the what the mm -hmm. um, the net compound average annual return is. Yep. Now, rightly, you can't just look at well what you expect from the market. You've got to ex ex uh, ex extract taxes and fees and, and all the yeah, rest of it yeah. from that. 
But you'll you'll notice that when you're dealing with like multi-decade periods, there's a hell of a lot of difference between 7% net and mm. 9% net. You mm. know, it's huge. Mm. Um, and then it's questionable, which one should I choose? I always try, I always prefer to err on the side of caution, build yeah. in a margin of safety. So yeah. go to the more conservative side of things. Mm-hmm. That way, if you're wrong, you're pleasantly surprised. You're more likely to be pleasantly surprised. You know, if you've, if you've built your retirement plan on achieving a 7% return net of fees and costs and transactions, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. taxes and the rest of it, and it ends up being more than that, you're not disappointed, right? <laughs> yeah, if, right. You've, if you've based everything on that's a 15% right, right. in your return and you fall short, we, it's, a, it's a bit of a rude awakening. So yeah. I, 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 would, I would say do it that way. Roughly right is always better than specifically wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that you'll find is that the, the other big determinant, and really- mm-hmm. To a large extent, the biggest determinant, um, and again, things change over what time frames you want to talk about, but it's the amount that you put in. Yeah. So in all, no matter what rate of return you want to sort of thumb suck, one thing is always true. The more that you tip into it, mm. the better off you're going to be. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it just basically says, be consistent, try mm. and go for the best rate of return that you can within reason without taking on too much risk. And uh, overall, you're going to do pretty well. I think that's exactly the right advice, mate. What I liked about William's question, though, is he's trying to balance between super and outside super. Oh, sorry. Yes. So okay. that's what, and which is yeah. where I, which is where actually I quite like the new. We touched on this last it, week, right? I think. Yeah, yeah, but but what I liked about the question specifically was that he's he's not saying look, I'm going to I'm going to save more, so that makes the difference. He's just trying to work out how to split the allocation, given that he's looking to maximise his super. But work out how much is too much, and then how much do I keep aside, and how do I kind of balance the two out? And to do that, he's I assume trying to work out okay, how much I'll have at retirement, how much do I want super to be, therefore what can I put elsewhere? That's kind of the, the kind of working oh, assumption, you. right? Which yeah. I, which I like. It's a really great thought, William, because you've taken it to that extra level, which is which is awesome. Um, well, when we when we touched on it last, I think it was last week or the week before, mm. it, it it came down to all else being equal. Yeah. Um, inside super is always better because yep. of the the huge tax advantages that you get. But but what you what you forgo for that is the opportunity cost. Um, so you know, as we, we we both said that we don't maximize our allocation to super mm-hmm. um, because it's just you know it's nice it's nice to be able to have access to the money for something un- yep. unplanned comes yeah, up exactly. Now and that, that's not a right or wrong, by the way. Other people go, yeah, yeah no, I'm, I've actually got <laughs> I've got enough to be comfortable yeah. with with that, and I want to yep. make sure that you know, and maybe I'm only five years from retirement, etc., mm-hmm. etc. So mm-hmm. it will always differ. But that's 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 the lens that you've got to look look through it, I think. And and for me, and this is just me, mm. I I I keep a fair chunk outside of super, so just so if I decide that I want to do something with that money before I'm 65, or maybe mm. it's 75 by the mm. time I, I retire, and the government <laughs> changes the rules on us yeah, all. Yeah. Um, I, I I just want that. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you when I'm 70 whether that was the right decision. Or not. <laughs> I like it, William. Some thoughts from me. A um, couple of things. Firstly, these assumptions work on, generally speaking, a balanced approach, balanced superannuation fund. Um, I hate the labels they use. They are useful. Here's the problem, as always. You've got to make rules and use terms and descriptions that suit everybody, not just people who know a little bit more. And I love that about it. Where it, where I struggle with it is for people who could do better but don't because they don't know better, that becomes tough. Now, William, you are doing better and knowing better because you're asking these questions, which is great. 
for most people, my view is if you can stomach the volatility, and most sugars it's in super, right? So just forget about it. Put it over there and leave it alone and never even look at it. But, other than check your fees. Uh, but um, balanced, if you've got 22 years to retirement, given the numbers you just threw us, and I know that's not personal advice, which is great, so thank you. Um, anyone who's 22 years to retirement should have a higher exposure to growth assets, or air quotes, aggressive, I hate that term too, um, than to cash and property because it's likely to give you a better long-term return with more volatility. So if you're not comfortable with volatility, don't do this at all. That's why I'm not giving personal advice. But generally speaking, I would say to most people, if you're 45 and you can manage to deal with volatility, you should be going for higher returns than balanced funds will give you. So the first thing is going to be all of those three calculators are wrong unless you're using that specific investment methodology or that specific investment mix. Um, now, not wrong in terms of the assumptions because the assumptions are the assumptions. If I put these things in a calculator, I get these numbers spot on, 100% accurately calculated. But wrong in the sense that if you are going to invest differently, and I think most people should, and have a higher allocation to shares, then they should get a higher return even with more volatility. So that's my view, my, my assumption, uh, my hypothesis. I could be entirely wrong as always. Shares may not do as well in the future as I think they will. I don't think that's true. Otherwise, I would change my assumptions. Uh, but so, you know, that's that's the first thing. So, and you've said the same thing. When you've done the compound interest calculator, you've got to $1.4 million. Um, second thing is... Uh, Please, everyone out there, use a super fund with the lowest fees you can find, assuming their investment approach is reasonable. And I say reasonable, not spectacular, because you're never going to know. Um, the one thing most people in super can do as a, as a nation, the best thing we can do for our collective retirements is all transfer to a fee that charges less. Straight out. That's all you need to do. Transfer to a fund, sorry, that, that charges you less. Uh, so the, the lower you can keep your fees, the more you'll compound well into the future. Uh, and then as you say, mate, using 8% rather than 6%, you get a very, very different number. So look at your super, uh, maximize the investment choice you're making to maximize your long-term returns. And at the same time, keep your fees down. That'll do most of the heavy lifting on top of, as Andrew's already said, the amount of money you put in. And those three things will be for most people, for everybody as a group, literally the, the entire system, that the value of the of super will be higher if people invest in shares, in my view, and keep their fees low two of those things together will, will give you a better result. In terms of planning to work out how much not to put in, in other words, you want to maximise maybe <coughs> me, that $1.7 million pension cap. You want to go something else outside that is my guess. Um, I get it. Uh, and it's hard to know exactly which one to do where. I would be inclined, despite my comment about breaking up between the two, as Andrew's already said, I would over... Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't just try to scrape in at just the one point seven. I'd go over that if I had the choice, um, as long as you have enough money outside that, because you'd rather be over than under given the tax advantages. So, if you want to keep some money outside, go for it. Uh, but if you're aiming to get to the one point seven, I would just err on the side of going over because of those tax benefits, rather than ending up under a little bit. Uh, so be be a bit conservative. Uh, but as I said, I think those super balanced numbers they use are, are too conservative for most people. I get the industry wants people to not take too much risk. I know a lot of financial commentators will want the same. Uh, I, I struggle with that. I get they're managing emotions and people's perspectives and what they might do if things go badly. Um, I said before, my mother came to me years ago and said, my super's gone down. It's not supposed to go down. What's going on? And, and I had that conversation. It was kind of a rubbish year for the stock market. And that's kind of what happens. Um, had she not had that conversation with me, I don't know what she would have done. If it had been someone else without, without someone in the industry, she may well have made some different decisions because she didn't want to lose money anymore. So they, that, that's part of the, unfortunately, part of the challenge we've got to deal with. But I do think um, changing some assumptions, but not the assumptions in terms of the, what you put in the calculator, what you actually do with your money, i.e. the investment um, 
uh, strategy and fees can make a massive, massive difference. Just, just one quick thing before we move on, um, and I say this all mm. the time, is just unless you are reasonably close to retirement, yep. the option that you should select should be the most aggressive option available. Yes, agreed. And, and it, it, it flies in the face of intuition because yep. who wants to take risks <laughs> with, their, with their super? Yeah. yeah. But they're using very different the, – the words that they choose are very mm-hmm. wrong. By risky in this yeah. context, they mean yeah. volatile. Yep. But when you're, when you're investing over a decade or more, um, yep. it just it, – you know. Equities will always out before, always have maybe yeah. not a guarantee, but they're yeah, always going to be one of the best performing yeah, asset yeah, classes. Yeah. Um, it just means that that it's going to be you are going to have those years where you are down, but yeah. that only matters when you're like really close to retirement and you don't want to mm-hmm. risk it mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. But 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 yeah, if you're uh, really if you're under the age of fifty, yeah. I would encourage you to select the 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 the, the option that is all equities. Can I just add to that, mate? One thing I've said before, but I say it again because I want to say it for, for for maximum impact is if you're 50, you've got 15 years to retirement, you've then probably got another 30 years to live. Yeah. Right? By the time you get to retirement, the actuaries say you'll live to 85, 90, 95. If you're 50 and you've got 45 years left to live, assuming you're not going to go to entirely cash, take your super out your 65th birthday and blow it on a yacht, assuming you're going to keep it in that account for decades after you retire to let it compound and help fund your living expenses. Your time horizon is not just the 15 years to retirement. It's the 45 years or so until you shuffle off this mortal coil. Now, yes, things could go wrong. You could die at 62. You could die at 67. Um, you could die at 104. Uh, but keep your time frame, as long as that money is going to remain invested, even if you're drawing down on it, the money you're not drawing down is remaining invested for decades and decades and decades. And that should put yeah. that volatility into perspective. And, and the, the value matters too. So yeah. if you're one of these people who are super fortunate and you've got $10 million in super, <laughs> stay all equities, right? Because yeah. even if there's a 50% drawdown and it's, you're still fine, yeah. right? If, if you've, yeah. uh, and it just, it doesn't make sense having all this money, just this big cash drag there. Mm-hmm. You feel a bit safer for it, but yeah. you know, you're never, you're never going to go hungry or, you know, not pay the bills or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that's that, that fact is in as well, right? If you've got $10 million, mate, you've got any problems either way, no matter what you do. No, you've got to cash really, spend it all, but I take, I take, you're right, you're absolutely right. And that's why I talk about the the capital versus the income, right? So if you need, whatever money you're planning to spend, the dollars you're planning to spend, you need to know that's secured so you don't have to sell shares at the wrong time. But anything you're not having to sell or use uh, that you've got multiple years worth of compounding for. Uh, I, I've said before, mate, I don't mean to do this to to uh, you know um spruik one of our services everlasting income is a service we run at the full it's a portfolio the entire aim of that portfolio is to to fund living expenses off dividends not selling any shares so if that capital is never required hopefully touch wood literally never required and the income from dividends is enough why wouldn't like that that that's that's the way it's designed if you're in that fortunate position then then you know as you say with the 10 million dollars so see it through because that money's going to keep compounding away keep delivering income for years you may never need to touch that capital in which case you want it in the highest returning asset class yep I had a friend years ago who said to me that they would never sell I go, oh yeah but you sell at some point right you gotta you gotta reap the benefit you know never sell and it, and it, did, it took a while and like he was getting at exactly what you're saying out there yeah. is that yeah. the, the whole point of this cash is to 
have it work for you. Correct. And if yeah. it's going to throw off all this cash flow each year, why would you interrupt that? You the goose that lays the golden egg maybe quite literally. Want, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, look, at some point you decide that you want to buy a super yacht. Okay, yeah. Yeah. fine. Um, <laughs> Knock yourself know, out. I'd, I'd ask you to yeah, question your priorities and what could be a better use of that money for the for the wider world. But anyway, you know, yeah, okay, that's the, that's kind of the exception. Ferrari, right? But yeah, never sell. That is the yeah. that's Buffett says as well, my favourite holding period is forever. And, and it takes... It, at a first level, it's sort of like that's yeah. stupid. Like obvious, I have to. I'm not making any money until I sell. It's like no, that's that's not true. Um, so yeah, yeah. Mate, never I'm going to change question orders because I'm going to go a question from Paul, and it's going to touch on exactly this. So I've got some things to say. Hopefully, you will too. Paul says, "Hello, gents. Your valuable commentary is typically focused on long-term wealth creation during the accumulation years. As someone who is approaching retirement." I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts around how you would, if appropriate, restructure your portfolios when it comes to your own retirement. Uh, Many thanks great. from Paul. So it kind of talks to the point we were just making, mate, which is lovely timing, Paul. Thank you. Yeah. Um, mate, I love this question because I've been thinking a bit about this recently. Hopefully I'm many, many years away from retirement. But as you start to think about that idea of maybe never selling or how you want to structure a portfolio, I've been thinking a lot about this. Mm. If I, 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 so uh, let me give you some personal example, personal information. About 40% of my portfolio, roughly, I think, is in US shares right now. Mm-hmm. When, uh, and so when I come to sell those, hopefully in, you know, 20 years time, uh, hopefully I will have made some decent capital gains on those. Because US shares don't tend to pay dividends, and by the way, to my largest business around Amazon who doesn't pay dividends, Berkshire doesn't pay a dividend. Uh, they may at some point between now and then. Um, I'm going to have to sell those shares if they don't pay a dividend by then or the dividend's not high enough to justify what I want out of my portfolio. I'm going to have to sell those shares and either use the cash, so you know, cut, take small bits off it, sell you know, X percent of my portfolio every year for living expenses or I sell it and I put the money into something that produces more dividends. Now, in doing that, I'm going to pay capital gains tax, which assuming there's a 50% discount still, there may not be, but assuming there is, I'm going to have to pay that if I... Let's say I'm really, really lucky. Let's say I've, I've been okay with Amazon and Berkshire, actually. Some of my Amazon shares I've made a, a decent multiple of. So I'm going to pay, you know, somewhere between 15 and 25% in capital gains tax. So for every $100 of, of Berkshire shares or Amazon shares I've got, let's, let's use the outliers for fun. I'm going to have to pay $25 every $100 I, share, I sell. So I've already lost a quarter of my money that I can then use to do whatever I want with. If I then invest in dividend-paying shares after that, well, I've actually kind of, I've only got three quarters of the money left to get those dividends from. So maybe I would have been better off buying something else that gave me dividends now, knowing I never have to sell and never have to take the capital gains tax haircut on the way through. One thought. To your point about never selling, maybe I never sell. Maybe I want something that's going to pay me dividends forever and never have to sell those shares. Because again, the capital gains tax hurts and... I'm going to have to try and sell something, buy something else or or take small pieces off. So I've absolutely started thinking about Paul's question because the decision I make today, even though hopefully I am 20 years away from retirement, the, the, the conversations, the, the, the choice I'm making now, absolutely. Will I look back? I'll look back at that point 20 years time, hopefully, 2042 and say, oh, thank goodness or oh, bloody hell or man, the ATO is doing well out of this, but I'm, I kind of got less than I thought I would have. So I've had exactly these thoughts. That's yeah. a setup. I'll give you my thoughts about how or what in a minute. What would you? What do you think as you approach retirement? As as our listeners maybe are approaching or in retirement, how does that change 
the way you think about your portfolio? It's such a it's such a conundrum, isn't it? I yeah, there's no easy answer. I I do tend to think we overthink tax. Mm. Um, tax is a great problem to have. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is the best problem to have. Yes. I really it does annoy me a little bit when mm-hmm. when people sort of complain about how much tax they've had to pay. It's kind of I get it because no one yeah. likes paying tax, but at the yeah. same time, the way our system is set up, broadly speaking, even if you sort of tweak it around the edges, you, 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 the more money you make, the more tax you pay. So yeah. as I've often said, if the ATO turned around to me and and said, oh, "You owe us a million dollars in tax this year." Like what yeah. a year I've had! What an incredible right. year yeah. I've had! Yeah. Like, please, can I pay a million dollars in tax every year? <laughs> the alternative yeah. is I don't pay any tax, and yeah. the only way to do that legally is to not, to not make any money. So, <laughs> so I I do think that for me I'm I I don't focus on dividends at this point, and mm. I'm very much happy to be in the growth camp. Mm. Mm. And if that means that in 20 years' time I have these monster capital gains bills, mm. um, I might still be better off even on a post-tax basis if the gains are big enough. So it's yeah. it's hard. It's hard to say. But I probably will switch. I think as I get closer mm. to retirement, I probably will find that new capital that comes along or money that needs to be reinvested that gets sold for, for various reasons mm. will probably mm. find that they do leg more into income-producing assets. Mm. Um, but I'm at this point, I'm, I'm very much happy to focus on absolute maximization. Maximization? Ma- yeah, maximizing... <laughs> value my 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 the growth that i yeah. can get yeah yeah i'm somewhere in between mate you and i are the same age um you look about 10 years younger than me but uh, we are the same age uh we've, <laughs> checked, we've compared birth years no not really but we are the same age um i i'm i'm stuck somewhere between you and paul right now mate i gotta say um because and you're right that the maths is absolutely how much growth would you give up and how much tax would you forego or offset to do that because if i can have ten dollars earning me dividends or seven dollars fifty earning me dividends assume i'm paying the capital gains tax at the top right nice again nice problem to have and who knows what the tax rates are by then right or how much money we've got and all that kind of stuff but you know if i if i am the biggest challenge here is if you if you sell your portfolio to put it into income producing assets you're, you're potentially going to have a large capital gains tax bill if you do it all at the same time right because it's it might be your entire portfolio or 75 percent of your portfolio or half your portfolio you say well those Berkshire shares have been great, but they give me literally exactly zero, and I want some income from those, so I'm going to have to sell them. And when I sell, I'm going to have to tax on the full amount. So <clears throat> it's not even a matter of you know being in that tax bracket every year; it's just a one-off. If I sell, you know, X dollars, let's say I don't know, uh, well, let's use let's use the 1.7 million dollars that um, our, our, our previous uh, questioner asked about. Sell 1.7 million dollars worth of assets and, and put those into you know in a dividend-producing shares. That's a monster capital gains tax bill. That you know you could do over multiple years, but if you wait, again, you're not producing income while you're waiting, and so it's a really, really difficult one. Paul, I'm I'm starting to think uh, very seriously about the approach you're talking about. I am probably far enough away. I don't need to worry about it too much, but I am to your point, Andrew, about never selling. That's kind of my my aim, right? My my hope is. That if I can generate a large enough portfolio between now and retirement, that between the dividends and the franking credits, that my income will be large enough that I cannot have to sell anything to fund my lifestyle needs in retirement. In which, and that does you know, minimise tax, not avoid tax for the record. Minimisation is legal, avoidance is illegal. So I'm minimising tax. Um, and I'm happy to pay tax, as you say, by the way, uh, at the same time. But if I think about how do I maximize my returns, potentially, hopefully, you know, bequeath the shares to the kids eventually, 
um, doing that hopefully is is about you know not having that taxable event uh, by having to sell. So I'm I'm. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's not like on the day of your retirement you liquidate the entire portfolio as well, right? Well, you you can only so, sell right? what you need to sell in that particular year. So. Unless you want to turn that into income, that's that's the, that's kind of where you get the challenge of like unless you if you ever want to turn your portfolio into an income portfolio, you have to sell the stuff that's not producing a dividend. So it is. It, it, that, that's almost what I mean. That's why this is a, Paul's question is a really good one. I'm I'm absolutely midstream. I don't have a solid answer yet as to how I'm going to approach this. I haven't made any changes to my uh, portfolio approach at all. I could imagine myself absolutely investing in more income producing assets as I get closer to retirement, kind of pitching my portfolio in that direction. Uh, I don't feel like selling stuff and, and having a crystallizing a capital gains taxable event, unless I've got some losses to offset maybe to do it because that, that feels like it's a bit of an own gold right now, particularly while I let it grow. But at some point it's like, yeah, if I've got a, you know, $100,000 worth of Berkshire Hathaway shares at that point and they're producing exactly zero income, Maybe they grow, maybe they don't. But if I want to maximize my income in retirement, I've got to sell them to do that. And that's where it gets a little bit... It, it's really difficult because the money, the, the, amount of, the capital base matters. As you said, maybe if you've got $10 million, it's a different problem. If you've got a million dollars, then if you've got $500,000, um, really, really difficult conversations. I would say, in a relative sense, the less you are likely to have as a capital base as you get close to retirement, the more you should be thinking about buying income-producing assets because the tax will be more impactful and the, uh, and at that point, you, you're going to need all of your portfolio producing income. So you have, you have fewer choices. If you're going to retire to use your $10 million example before, mate, you can have half a million dollars in, in, in growth assets or non-income producing assets and the other $5 million worth of shares will still more than cover unless you're you know, uh, dining on caviar and mowed every, every night, uh, more than cover your income needs. So the, 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 the more reliant you are on absolutely every last dollar of your portfolio producing income, the earlier I reckon you should start investing in income producing assets to avoid that tax bill taking a large chunk out of what you've got. Mm. That's probably how I how I think about it. It's, it's a yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one. There's no there, well, there's no there's no exact. This is definitely what you should do. But there, I think I think we've outlined all the different considerations and. There's just I find it personally in my portfolio there is a natural turnover, mm. not because I'm having these planned sells, but I there are points where. I sold a bunch of stuff actually before July because it was like there was stuff that was in loss. So it was a good yeah, time to sell yeah. and lock in those losses. Yeah. Not to buy back again and do any wash trades, which are, <laughs> are not appropriate. Um, but because the thesis had busted on a few of them yeah, right. and there were better investment opportunities elsewhere. So there's just, there is, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes the thesis just plays out really well. It's like, yeah. great. I thought this was cheap. It turned out three years yeah. later, I got a yeah. great return. <laughs> the risk reward potential is not as good as an opportunity cost out there because this other mm-hmm. thing that I really like looks much much better even after accounting for tax so there's just this natural ch- I mean I'm, I'm a very yeah, reluctant seller yeah. I don't yeah. sell often at all yeah. but when I'm when I'm looking at a 20 year time horizon mm-hmm. before retirement there will just be a certain turnover that I can yeah. I can just gradually leg into that kind of stuff as I as I get closer yeah. without having to do this wholesale sell down at, at a specific point in time mm-hmm. But the closer you got, let's assume that some of our listeners don't have as much time as we've got till retirement. If you were five or 10 years away from retirement, you'd be probably actively looking for income, producing ideas to start to bulk that up? Yeah, but I would, I would, still, act, I would still act in relation to, in context with, within what my portfolio and the opportunity set looked at at that time. So yeah. let's, say, let's say I was about to retire next year mm-hmm. and I had my portfolio entirely in growth stocks yep. but they're all stuff I was pretty high conviction on thought they were really great mm-hmm. I'd probably be tempted just to leave it there and in, okay. and in that, that year where I lose an income mm. 
okay, I need some money to, to, to live. <laughs> well, I'll sell what I need to sell. Okay. Right? And leave the rest there. Let them play out. I, yeah, I, I can still do that. I can mm, still mm, absolutely mm. do that. And again, it will awesome. depend on the size because if, 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 if there's not a huge amount there, I can't risk a 50% drawdown and then yeah. sell at the bottom. And So I know that there's, <coughs> pardon me, I know that there's, mm, mm. there's a lot of considerations around that. But I, I think I think uh, uh, I think that's still perfectly viable. Buffett talks about it a lot with with his shareholders. He's like, yep, you know, yep. just just sell it as you need it. If, if yep. we'd paid a dividend, you would be far worse off than just take than just keeping your money uh, with us, yep. allowing us to compounding and just selling down as you need. Sometimes you'll be selling at points which aren't great. Other times you'll be selling at fantastic points. But overall, that's going to be a far far better proposition for you, mm. even if you are in retirement or about to be in retirement. It's kind of the reverse of dollar cost averaging in that sense, right? Do, whatever, dollar, dollar cell leveraging. This, this, oh, we'll invent a term later. Um, but no, I, I completely agree. Mate, let, let's move on. Uh, question from Rich. I like this one. He says, gents, first off, great podcast. Ever since I learned there was an Australian version of the Motley Fool Money podcast, I was subscribed. I will say though, I was slightly taken aback when you didn't have a go-to answer for how to teach your kids about money. From the other side of the pond, I've heard the American Motley Fool podcast suggest that Beth, I'm going to say it's Kobliner's, K-O-B-L-I-N-E-R, Kobliner, Kobliner, Kobliner's book, Make Your Kid a Money Genius, in brackets, even if you're not. It's set up by financial topic and gives ways to teach these topics throughout a person's life, i.e. preschool, primary, high school, uh, post high school. I've read it myself and really enjoyed the book and plan on using this as a rough outline for teaching my kids about finance. I hope it helps. Again, great podcast and keep up the fantastic work. Full on from Rich. I will check that one out, Rich. Um, I have heard it mentioned before. Now you mentioned it. I hadn't um, hadn't recalled it, but I will check that one out. The hardest part, mate, is unfortunately Andrew and I are going through parenting as we go. And so kind of knowing what works in advance, I will say one of Andrew and my great strengths is we know what we don't know and we're not, we're not ashamed to admit it. So, you know, the, like most of investing, it's kind of applied psychology and we know most of that stuff. We will. We are. We are currently in the middle of making mistakes with our respective children, and and some things will work and some things won't, and we'll learn as we go. Uh, this is probably one, honestly, where uh, the experience of someone who's been a parent and and kind of had the successes and failures is probably more useful. Uh, and so for us, like, I don't have a, don't have a strong answer. Don't know because I don't know how my son's going to respond to the things I think I'm going to try and teach him. Uh, if that work, then great. I'll share them with you. If they don't work, I'll share them with you as well. Uh, but it's, it's a work in progress, which is why I don't hold myself out as a kids investing expert, at least just yet. You, mate? Yeah, I'll check out the book. I, I, I'm, I'm definitely open to Sounds good. suggestions. Yeah. 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 yeah, I'll just repeat what I said the other week. I, I, I feel as though um, parenting mm. is one of these things that, you know, if when, <laughs> when we first had kids, you know, everyone's got advice for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all in the context of their personal experience. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Some of it's been great. Others have been less great. That's right. That's right. Yeah. There's some things yeah. I, I I was really high conviction on there. And this is how you do it. Turns out that it didn't work. Well, actually, well, it was really, <laughs> really, really <laughs> worked really great with one of our kids and yeah, totally yeah. didn't with yes, the other. And, yes. Yes. You know, they're their own little individuals and their yeah. own, and that becomes more apparent the older they get. So it's it's just hard. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, I, I guess I guess my 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 general approach is. Love them like crazy and lead by example, and I, I feel nice. as though that's that's probably that's pretty cool, mate. I like the that. best. A pro, like if you get, I think if you get those big things right, all the other mistakes turn out to be pretty little ones in the mm-hmm. in the, in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things. I like that a lot. Um, well done, but yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, 
Uh, Scott Pape, the Barefoot Investor, also apparently has a book coming out later this year, uh, which is written for kids. Uh, he's normally pretty good on this sort of stuff, so that's one I'm definitely going to check out as well. I don't know what it's going to be called. My guess is it's going to be called Barefoot Investor for Kids, knowing, knowing, his, uh, knowing his genre and, and oeuvre, as the cool kids say. Um, but uh, yes, he's a, he's a good guy and he'll have some good advice, so that's one I'll also check out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. My one from Stephen. Hi, Scott and Ram. I'm an avid listener. Love your practical advice and really appreciate your forthright and no BS opinions on all things, quotes, policy, not politics, end quote. Thank you, mate. Now, here's my question, he says. In volatile markets like now, we often hear investment professionals say they are fully cashed up. Wouldn't a better approach be to invest in quality companies that are fully cashed up or have low debt? For example, Macquarie, Fortescue or CSL, and let them make the right capital allocation decisions for you. Mm. Regards, Stephen. Nice, short, sharp point and a really good question. What do you reckon, mate? Is it, uh, do we say, you know what, I'll, I'll own the shares, you guys can the cash, or do you say I'll be cashed up and take the opportunities when I see them? What a great question. Um, and, and the answer is always that super frustrating, it depends. Oh, you have to you got to say that, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, there's, there's uh, here, well, let's talk averages. Um, <laughs> on average, most management teams aren't great capital allocators, That's in which case it'd be like, whatever great. money you own, yeah. give it to me and I'll decide whether to reinvest it in, in this business yeah. or into another business or to go, you know, uh, go on holiday or mm-hmm. buy a car or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and that requires a certain amount of hubris as well to sort of say, yeah. well, you guys are idiots, but, but, I'm, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm really great. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know? exactly. And, then, and then you get these just miracle capital allocators, which is just <laughs> please take my yeah. money, you yeah. know, keep whatever you can. In fact, you have more, have more because yep. you're so good at it. Yeah. And then you have the, those, those <laughs> examples where, wow – what an incredible 10-year history of phenomenal <laughs> capital allocation and then yeah. they fall flat on their face. It's Well, that, it's this is GE on Friday, right? That was GE. Yeah. GE was the, was the world's best company <laughs> for years and then just yep. fell in a massive heap, massive yep. heap. It's really hard. I mean, in theory, it's best to leave it with the company mm. because it stays within the company and you don't have to handle any of the, the tax consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's right. They often have opportunities that you don't mm-hmm. um, because they the owners of the brand and the capital and the assets that already exist there and that they can probably leverage that to, to mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to greater effect than what, what is potential, what is available elsewhere. But mm-hmm. there's no, there's just no easy answer. You know, so, so really the, the, an, the answer, the best answer I can give is it depends on how good the team that you're talking about are relative to you. Mm-hmm. And you can't ever know for sure, but if you have a reasonable degree of conviction that the management team that you're talking about are really smart, long-term mm-hmm. capital allocators, mm-hmm. then then by all means, give them plenty of rope. I and love going. Take it yourself. Yeah, take it, take it on board yourself. I give you a massive rap, mate. I love that idea of the relative ability. I think that that is a real. I've never heard it expressed that way. It's fantastic. Are they, are they better than me, or am I better than them? If they're better than me. Have the money. If I'm better than them, I'll take the money back. Thing, and you need yeah. to be, you need to have a little bit of um, ability to self-reflect and all that kind of stuff. I love that suggestion, mate. Really, really, really good, um, Stephen. I, I'm going to echo Ram's thoughts uh, I, with one addition. You'll, you'll probably expect this from me if you've been listening to the podcast for a while. I'm always fully invested because the market goes up over time, and the companies I, I invest in, uh, you know, who have have the cash to allocate. Uh, again, you know, it's a question of opportunity cost, to Ram's point before. A company with no cash on the balance sheet and lots of debt 
may still create massive amounts of business value uh, because they are continuing to grow and, and be successful. And so, you know, if you think about it, again, I'll use an Amazon because it's just an easy example. It's probably a lazy one. I should come up with others. Um, and, you know, I own shares. But an Amazon who've, you know, have not had lots of cash at different times have just created massive, massive, massive amounts of value by just building this business momentum machine, which has gone extraordinarily well. Uh, so, you know, that, that's one of those uh, situations. Other businesses with lots and lots of debt have, have you know, also created... I mean, think about banks, right? Now, banks haven't been great over the last five years, but for the, the previous 35 or so, um, they, their business is debt. Created massive, massive amounts of value. So, <coughs> excuse me. I would, I would you know, I, I don't... I, so starting point, I don't think being cashed up is smart generally. Let me say that outright. Unless you're really good at timing the market. We talked about that on Friday. I don't believe timing the market is possible by mortals. Um, so being cashed up now suggests you know there are going to be better prices to come. As I said on Friday, the market jumped 5% in 10 trading days. Uh, if you were cashed up during that period, you missed out an opportunity to get that sort of return. So I don't love the idea of being cashed up at all. Personally, I love being fully invested. I'm always, almost always fully invested. So I would do that. The companies that I invest in are absolutely quality companies, some fully cashed up, some not, uh, because I don't think, as Andrew said, firstly, capital allocation matters, um, but it's not necessarily allocating new large amounts of cash. In fact, if they are fully cashed up, they're trying to time their own markets, and maybe they can buy great assets, maybe they can't. Uh, I like Macquarie as a business, I think it's spectacularly good. I own shares in Fortescue for full disclosure. I like what Twiggy's doing there. CSL seems to be a great business, has always done really well. I've never owned it. Um, but you know these guys will do well regardless of their cash positions necessarily. If they're using their company's allocation, capital allocation methodology correctly, they will they will drive value doing that. So uh, if, you, if that's if this is an approach that works for you, Stephen, or anyone else, then go for it. If that makes you happier, for sure. Um, but I'd rather be fully invested in quality businesses. Let them do, let them create value, not just not just allocate cash capital, but allocate capital in general. Um, Debt can be great use of capital if you do it wisely and smartly. It can be risky, but it can be super smart and super valuable as well. Um, there's ways of doing that successfully. Does that make sense, mate? Yeah, perfect sense. Yep. It's unusual Nothing for me, to add, as Charlie think. Munger would say. <laughs> he would indeed, mate. Well done. <laughs> well done. All right, let's go to a question from Anonymous. Hi, Scott and Ram. Firstly, please keep my name anonymous. Secondly, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. So I thought I'd hit you with two questions at once. I'm in my mid-30s and I've been investing in shares for three years now with a view to retiring from the corporate world in 20 years. Fair enough. Good on you. Approximately two-thirds of my investments are in a portfolio that is managed by my financial advisor. They also manage 100% of my superannuation. I'm dollar-cost averaging into the investment account every two to three months. The investments are a mix of managed funds and ETFs that have both domestic and international exposure, predominantly in the US. Performance before fees, as you would expect, is about in line with the broader market. Advisor fees are a flat rate that amounts to approximately 1% of my current balance. The other one third of my funds, I'm investing myself in 25 small to mid cap companies and thematic ETFs without financial advisor consultation that I feel have the potential to outperform over the long term. While this portion of my portfolio is more volatile, performance over the past two years is about on par with the investments my financial advisor oversees. Assuming, he says, my, port my personal investments are performing similarly to that of my advisor over the long term, anywhere from better to less than 1% worse, at what, what point would it make sense for one to sever ties with your advisor and emulate their investments yourself within your self-managed portfolio and save on 20 years worth of advisor fees? Or to the contrary, 
At what point should I sell my self-managed shares and put the funds into the investment account, effectively diluting the advisor fees, that's an interesting idea, that I am paying regardless? Presumably many other listeners are or have been in a similar boat. You've got a second question, but let's go with that, mate, for starters. I really like the question about which way do you go? Because either way, right? If you, if you combine them, you dilute the fees. If you take them out, you save the fees. His returns are roughly the same across both, but I'm, two years isn't exactly uh, a long time to judge performance. Mm. Two years in, mate, how would you be thinking about this question? It's going to be real. It's going to be controversial because oh, look out. I'm sure we've got Coming off financial advisors listening. Um, oh, dear. But ditch them. And, and I, say that, I say that with the greatest of respect. Um, <laughs> well, I've got a lot of data to back me up. I was reminded recently of the bet that Buffett made a few years ago. Yeah. Actually, more than a few years ago, but yeah. he, he, he had a million-dollar bet. Yep. I think it was over a five, 10-year period, was it? Uh, Let me look it up while you chat. It was over a reasonable period, and he bet a million dollars that he could pick one investment, mm-hmm. um, that, which was a passive index fund. Um, that would be an actively managed one. And I forget who took it up. You'll remind me of the details in a moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that person selected uh, Mm. five funds of funds. So funds that had a hedge fund that had managed, that had invested in a subset of of Mm -hmm. other hedge funds. Mm -hmm. The smartest people on Wall Street, basically. And the bet started and it wasn't looking good after a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, Buffett just crushed it. It wasn't even close. It yep. wasn't even close. And and the lesson of the story here is, and this is backed up by lots of evidence, is that over mm. time, the passive index approach tends to beat not just the, the professionals 51% of the time or 52% mm. of the time. Mm. Depending on the study that you reference, it's usually around 80% of the time. Yeah. So there, are there people that consistently beat the index? Yes. Are they in the minority? Yeah, they, they absolutely are. Mm. So maybe- Maybe the financial advisor in question is is the one in five that manages to beat it. In fact, they're worth this one percent because yeah. they just crush it. Um, it's too early to tell over that that time frame, and I don't I don't want to besmirch their their good name. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe they are that, but statistically mm-hmm. they're not. Yeah. So I would say on on the balance of like what do I do myself and what do I outsource? Mm-hmm. I would say if you're going to outsource, outsource to a passive index fund, and then say oh, I'm going to put eighty percent to a passive index and I'm going to play around with. 20% myself because I enjoy it. I'm learning a lot. I feel as though, again, as, as the listener said, I feel as though I can do pretty good out of that. Great. Yeah. Yep. Um, you, you may look back and go, oh, I should have stuck with that advice because they've <laughs> outperformed the market. Yeah. Yeah. But A, the odds are no, that's not going to be the case. And B, mm. the odds are even if they do, it's not going to be by an amount. So the regret is, it's not going to be a huge regret factor there. Mm. Um, Except so the money's still I, money, I play- right? <laughs> the, the regret factor is still going to cost you Seven, uh, so five or six figures uh, potentially at some point, which is not nothing. Not not that you should change your view, by the way. But I, I just want to I just want to prepare the listener for any any loss when you do the maths. Is like, oh, that wasn't by much, but that's uh, forty eight thousand dollars. It's you know the, yeah. it, at retirement it's gonna be it's gonna be you know whatever, whatever small proportions still look and feel ugly. So be prepared for that. I'm not saying you should, you're wrong, by the way, mate. I'm just saying if you do yeah. underperform or the advisor outperforms, you will be tempted to do the maths, and the maths will hurt, and you'll kick yourself. You can't have known in advance. It's, it's this is the this is the uh, the advantage of the average, though. I mean, yeah. he's yeah. guaranteed to be the average. Correct. The so you so you know that you're not going to un- you're not yeah. you're not yeah. going to yeah. outperform. Okay, Correct. that sucks. But yes. but you're not going to underperform either. Yeah. So it's it's kind it's of such a it's a it's a it's, free like I, honestly the idea of passive ETFs. It, it drives me nuts that more people don't use them, right? And I'm not talking about people like us or people like our listeners who want to pick stocks. I'm talking about people who go to a financial advisor or someone else and get this fund of funds where they pay stupid fees. It's like, 
you are literally being it's a it's a free kick. You're getting the yeah. average. You're getting the average of whatever it ends up being, probably somewhere around ten percent best guess, but close yeah. enough to it. For yeah. nothing with no, I would say no risk. You, you have zero risk of underperforming the average. By definition, you are getting yeah. the market return. Yeah. It's like you don't get a better. Op- I mean, they say diversification is only free lunch. Man, index ETFs have got to be the second by not very much. Oh yeah. From all of my friends and family, because mm. um, mm. they all know what I do. But yep. my advice is do that. Yep. Buy a passive right. index fund, yep. one or yep. two. Yep. Make one for the Aussie market, one for the US. Go yep. home. Yep. Forget about it. And yet, I, I just, it's like do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. One because I just don't need the grief. There's, there's nothing. There is nothing more yeah. um, stressful in this life than giving financial advice to friends and family. Because <laughs> even if you're right after ten years, you cop a lot of grief on the way yeah. through. And if you are yeah. right, you don't get any credit. You just get all the blame. So I, I just yeah. don't do it. And and I and yet I, I'm a I'm a stock picker. I, I do it all myself. So for me, the the main decision is: <laughs> Do you enjoy it? Do you find value in it? Yeah. Um, because if yeah. you're not, then yeah. it, you just just do the passive index one. It's too easy not to do it. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm talking myself out of you know um, against the, against my personal financial yep. interest. Absolutely. In terms of what most of our businesses are, mm-hmm. but I say it to our members all the time. If, yep. if you're not interested in this stuff, you don't actually get pleasure in the process. Then just don't do it. Like yep. why? Why bother? You might do better. You might do worse. But if if, it, if it's a if it's a chore, if it's mm-hmm. stressful, if it's keeping you awake at night, life's too short. Life's too short. Just gar- guarantee yourself the average and and, and go for, go go chase what you're passionate about in this life because you're not going to be here forever. Um, so yeah, that that's that's how I carve it up. I've said the same thing to our members, mate. If if I can't beat the market for you over a long period of time, any extended period of time, yeah. Well, I would say two years is not enough, by the way, uh, to to our to our listeners. So just I, I wouldn't use that. I think as it was benchmark, three years, but way. yeah, it's same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, he said, he said oh, uh, he's invested over the last eight and twenty four months. He's been roughly oh, in line with his oh, advisor's okay, returns. Okay. So yeah, but yes, you're right. He's been with the advisor. He's been investing for three years. Yes. Um, I so it's too short to know. So don't don't judge your performance or your advisor's performance on that shorter time period. But that being said, Andrew's longer term analysis is absolutely spot on. So don't don't give yourself too much credit or blame yet. But the overall returns likely from your advisor's numbers on average are, as Andrew says, going to be losing to the market. Um, so before I answer the question, mate, here's a, a this is from CNN Business. I'm going to read large swathes rather than try and paraphrase because just done well. One decade ago, they say, Warren Buffett took a $1 million wager. This is in 2018 it was written, so it's now 14 years ago, but you get the idea. Took a $1 million wager that stashing money in an index fund would make you richer than if you entrusted it with hedge fund managers. He won big time. And in his annual letter on Saturday, he talks about it, blah, blah, let me keep going. His pick, the S&P 500, gained 125.8% over 10 years. The five hedge funds, picked by a firm called Protégé Partners, added an average of 36%. The hedge funds, quote, got off to a fast start, each beating the index fund in 2008. Then the roof fell in, end quote. That's from Buffett. Uh, now, here's this, and this is to your point, mate. This is Buffett saying, um, I'm going to read, there's some quotes in here. I'm going to read the article and then quote Buffett's lines just so everyone knows what I'm doing. Making money on the stock market, quote, does not require great intelligence, a degree in economics, or a familiarity with Wall Street jargon. What investors then need instead is an ability to both disregard mob fears or enthusiasms and to focus on a few simple fundamentals. Stick with big, easy decisions and eschew activity, end quote, Buffett said. Yep. So that's, uh, that's, that's the key one here. Uh, by the way, it says, that's a, the article then goes on, that's essentially the cornerstone of Buffett's investment philosophy and proving that point is part of the reason he took on the bet in the first place, <laughs> yeah. which is, uh, is kind of nice. 
<clears throat> and look, you know, this is, I got to say too, by the way, man, talk about career risk. I mean, not that Buffett worried worry about his career, but Buffett makes his big outlandish bet. He's Buffett, so he's going to get publicized. If he loses this bet, he looks like a complete deal, right? But he knew over time, the odds were very good that he would be successful and he was, and that's that's important. I agree with your point entirely, Ram, to, with, with a couple of additional thoughts. One, a financial advisor can be great for a few things. The first is structure. Yep. If you want to get your financial life in order, a financial advisor can be great. Second, if you need it, they can be great financial coaches. Hopefully, we're doing a pretty good job of that here on this podcast for free, by the way. But if you need someone that you can literally cry on the shoulder of, get some reassurance from, ask for support, uh, you know, if you need that extra, um, someone to walk beside you, they are absolutely worth the money if it stops you doing something stupid. Yeah. So I don't, I don't mean stupid. That, that sounds like I'm being harsh. Saves you doing, saves you making a mistake, right? Um, if you're going to sell when things get tough, the fee of the advance the advisor charge you is probably cheap relative to the losses you would lock in by selling at a 30, 40, 50% decline. Okay. If you are likely to stop investing because you can, because you don't have to be accountable to anybody, that yeah, financial advisors can be like a good, a good financial advisor can be like a good personal trainer. Could I do it myself? Yes. Am I going to? Ask yourself. If I'm if I'm going to get off off the couch, go for a run myself, I can save a fortune not paying a personal trainer. If that personal trainer keeps me accountable, helps me improve, all that kind of stuff, if they're a good coach, then that is absolutely worth all the money you pay if they're going to give you a better outcome, not in the investments, but in everything else that goes with it, the the psychological, the behavioral, that sort of side of stuff. So that's two reasons I would absolutely recommend a financial advisor if you're someone who needs that help. Um, Super useful. But to Andrew's point, the investment approach, the investment returns, unlikely to be better from a financial advisor. One quick uh, thought on the relative returns. You're comparing your returns, anonymous, on uh, thematic ETFs and small to mid-cap companies against a couple of ETFs, you know, index ETFs your advisor's got you in. That is going to diverge meaningfully over time because smaller mid-cap companies won't go the same direction as the market, often for years and years at a time. Thematic ETFs, similarly. If you'd have bought a thematic buy now, pay later ETF a year and a half ago, you would have thought yourself you're a genius. And then the last 18 months, you would have said, oh, I'm an idiot, that's ter- gone terribly. Uh, I don't know what the net net result would be. You probably would have made money if you bought them cheap enough early enough. Uh, maybe you lost a fortune if you bought them at the top. So just, just be a little bit careful comparing your performance in very, very, very different assets against someone else's over a short time, like two or three years, even three years. I think it's just too... If you're comparing your index choices versus their index choices or your thematic ETFs versus their thematic ETFs, maybe you'd have an argument. Uh, but just be a little bit careful. But I would say, like Andrew says, particularly if, it's, if they're index ETFs, you don't be paying someone a fee for that. Like that's, you know, if they're picking smaller mid-cap stocks and doing well, okay, maybe because they're adding really meaningful stock picking value. If it's going to put you in ETFs, then that's not worth the money. So I would say, like Andrew, uh, don't pay for something you can do yourself. Your question, my question to you to ask yourself is, can I do this all myself? And not just the, can I pick an ETF? Everyone can do that. But can I stay the course? Can I remain calm? Can I consistently add money? Can I avoid temptation? All those things that I, that use a personal trainer example, a financial personal trainer would help you stay on the straight and narrow. If you need that support, it is cheap as chips. If you don't need it, it's super expensive. And yep. that's probably the way I'd, I'd sort of characterize it. Yep. Any more thoughts, man? <clears throat> don't have to. Um, I don't want to get myself into trouble, but I think, I think it's like a lot of. I think it's like a lot of. <laughs> but he I'm says, gonna, I'm going to generalize here. Because Go I, on. I think I, I never I ever generalize. I've told you that before. I'm going to say I know a lot. I, I know a couple of <laughs> financial advisors. 
and and they all say the same, right? Yeah. Which is there's a lot of there's a lot of dodgy yeah. people in our industry. I say it about our industry specifically. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, more 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 than more often than not, there's yeah. generally speaking, when you when you talk about mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. general advice industry, it's just full of people spruiking unreasonable yeah. things. Yeah. Just that. I mean, and, and the re- and the re- the reason for that is makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. from a game theoretical standpoint. Mm-hmm. You you walk down the street. There's someone with mm-hmm. a sandwich board. You're wearing a sandwich board that says, "Hey." probably get you a bit better than the market average, but it's going to be scary. And some days you'll be down 20%, others you'll be yeah, up. Yeah. But overall, it'll be pretty good. We'll charge you a few yep. hundred bucks a year. Yep. And then they walk a bit further and there's another bloke, and I say bloke because it's always, <laughs> always a bloke, bloke. Yes, yep. um, uh, has a sandwich board on that says, hey, make a million dollars. We've got a stock here that's going to the moon. Hmm. Now, which one are you going to go for? Yeah, you know, yeah, you're so. gonna go for yep, the one yep. that has has that human hot, nature, yeah. right? And, yeah. and and so that they're they're, they're the, that's that's why that's why it goes goes that way. But and by the way, if, one, I, of them, if one of the two of them do badly, you're gonna blame them and want to go somewhere else and all yeah. the stuff that goes with that. Like it's all human nature. Yeah. We we want we want all of the upside with none of the yeah. risk. We want we want an easy answer. I, I, I yeah, you know yeah yeah we, we get it occasionally. Um, our renewal with Strawman is is coming mm-hmm. up. And there's a couple mm-hmm. people that just you know they they. Uh, I don't want to be careful what I what I say. I think <laughs> you get the clients you deserve at, at yeah. the end of the day. And if if you I say this really upfront with our yeah. messaging, if if you're after someone who's just going to give you mm-hmm. easy answers and make a fortune and take no risk, or you just yeah. go, go somewhere else, there'll be plenty yeah. of other people who promise that. I'm not going to promise that. They won't deliver it, by the way. They'll promise it. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't deliver it. I just exactly. can't. Exactly. Right? Yep. And 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 like even if we do go well over time, you know, do, do you want mm. to be the kind of do you mm. want the kind of return? Well, I'll ask you, put it to you this way: Would you rather fifteen percent a year on average for ten years, and then drop twenty percent on the last year, yeah. or would you prefer eight percent a year without any drawdown at all? Yeah, yeah. Now you do the maths, and we want so it's, it's just, easy. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. easy. It's yeah. easy, right? But that's right, mathematically, academically, it's easy. Living through that can be hard, and that's this is the challenge for people. Yeah, and I've I've, also, I've been in the game long enough to know that just some people will never, most people will never yeah. get it. Doesn't mean yep. you can lead the horse yep. to water. You can put their head underwater. You just can't. You can't get the message across, and that's fine. That's just human nature. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, um, it, it's it, I'm not on an evangelical crusade to save the world <laughs> here. It's kind of like if, yeah. if if you get what we're about and you want to be part of it and you want to participate and join, great. You know, yeah. we're here. Let's let's all sort of make, let's all help each other out. Um, uh, I love it, but it, it's the exception. And so, I, what am I trying to say here? I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of while there's some real awesome financial planners out there that are worth yep. their weight in gold. Same yep. as with accountants, same with doctors, same with hairdressers, same with any kind of service based industry. Mm-hmm. There's this eighty twenty rule. I think that's at yep. play here. And and so the, the the big caveat I guess I'm driving at here is that if you've got a really great financial advisor, keep them and stay with them <laughs> yeah, and cling to them, right. cling to them for all yeah. that they're worth because they're worth a fortune and they deserve everything that they charge yeah. you. Yeah. Just be aware that statistically, most probably won't be that great. Yep, yep. And understand the value objectively that they're adding and go from there. Uh, yep. Last one from Dion, mate. G'day, Scram. He says he's combined our names. <laughs> oh, to no. I wanted to write in and say that I love the pod. And you guys bring immense value to the investment community. Thank you, mate. I look forward to hearing from you every week, especially when you talk anything macro. Now for my question. My workplace is huge and I interact with lots of different people on a daily basis. On occasion, the topic of personal finance pops up and I'm required to sit through an unsettling one-sided conversation about how you cannot go wrong if you buy a lithium miner or you need to avoid Bitcoin and buy one of the cheaper coins that hasn't propped off yet or... 
Google just did a share split. So you should buy some now, they're cheaper. Or oh Rio Tinto is a must buy because they pay out huge dividends. I could go on and on, says Dion. These conversations don't bother me per se, but I don't understand the dogmatic nature that is ostensibly present in every view somebody has about anything finance. Sorry if this sounds self-righteous. I am definitely no professional investor myself and I mainly stick to ETFs. As people who do this for a living, you must get swamped by a ton of Joe Blows and they're two cents worth on a regular basis. This is kind of what I was just talking about, right? Except, yeah. How do you respond to dogmatic theses though, Dion asks, when the premises they're based on are outright wrong? I find myself trying to politely correct some inaccuracies when I can get a word in, but I'm not as eloquent or articulate as you blokes and usually come off as preachy and dismissive. On one, <laughs> preachy, that's that's Andrew that no, I'm kidding. On <laughs> one hand, I'd like to share the little of what I know because it may save someone from losing a lot of money. On the other hand, I would feel terrible if the something coin, the, the crap coin I'll say to, to paraphrase down, I talked them out of buying, went to the moon. So what do you guys do when some investor bro tries to sell you on the next big thing? Do you try to educate, placate, or change the topic? Didn't mean to rant so hard, says Dion. Mate, you're among friends. But it's these frequent interactions that make me a believer in an inefficient market. <laughs> Cheers yeah. from Dion. What do you reckon, mate? Oh, I love it. It's well, kind of what <laughs> I was getting at. I mean, the, the, the and I say this from experience. Mm. The frustrating thing is, is that you can... Mm question and challenge in, 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 in the most constructive way that you can possibly conceive <laughs> yeah. and you will never change the mind of, yeah. of, of some people, of a lot of people. And, and again, yeah. it's just, I'm sure I'm the same in, in a lot of things, a lot of ways as well. You know, I've got Bitcoin. my views and, yeah, right? And, you know, and, and someone can come at me and sort of point out all the flaws and I'm just going to go, no, 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 I know better. And it's just, we, we're all like that. It's, totally. it's like, no one answers a survey saying that I'm a below average driver. <laughs> That's right. Do you That's know? Right. It's yep. kind of, yep. It, yep. It, is, it is inbuilt. So I, I gave up on trying to change it. I, I think, <laughs> I think Dion, the, the approach you take is the right one is yeah. where you can get a word in is, is mm. probably sort of say, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, but here's some other views on mm. that. And then they, mm. they will either take it on board or, the, or they won't. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I, I think the, the best approach is mm. I've found, uh, is direct challenge is 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 never going to work because we just need to protect our egos. So if you if you do want to have a hope of changing someone's mind, I think I forget there's a name to the technique, but it's it's usually don't say you're wrong, but pose a challenge of and say, oh okay, that's a really oh I should buy Scott coin. Oh that's interesting. Um, what do you think could go wrong with that, or why is oh, it this? Okay. You ask you ask nice. a question mm, to mm, get mm. them to answer, and if there's any capacity for self reflection and that, <laughs> they, they, it's more like not guaranteed. Yeah. In fact, far from yeah. guaranteed, but more likely to get someone to sort of consider things and and, and maybe reflect on it and and change their mind. Outright saying you're wrong, you're an idiot, and obviously <laughs> I know you're not saying that, Dion. But if, if you were to say that, that's just that that never works. It never ever ever works. In fact, people that will entrench entrench their position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you made this point to me years ago, mate. The whole idea of you know the, the more you challenge someone, ask them to defend their position, the more you push them back into believing or re- reaffirming yep. that position. It's um, it was a real challenge for me at the time. Uh, I have said before, mate. If I was born in the 1800s, I would have been a stump preacher. I just have that kind of. I want to help people. I want to. <laughs> I want to show people the light, uh, not in a religious sense this time, but in a financial sense. And that's kind of what we do. Why we do what we do. Uh, but uh, I, I completely agree with you. I so the only the only thing I've found that has worked ish for me is making it a making it about me, not about them. 
So yeah. I would say, no, that's cool. I, I'm not doing that because I'm worried about this or because I think that. And so you're not saying you're wrong. You're just explaining why it's not right for you. And yep. does that change their mind? Not necessarily. But it lets you tell them what you think without saying that they should do the same thing. So uh, the other thing, by the way, if I've given advice to family and friends, um, to the extent I have, I've always said, look, here's what I am doing or here's what I would do if I was in that situation. You need to do what's right for you. Here's how I would think about it. Here's what I would do. And so it lets them... I'm not saying you should do this. So, you know, if it goes well, so be it. If it goes badly, so be it. Uh, I'm just, and by the way, what I say, if it goes badly, so be it. I'm not, I'm not being reckless with the, with the, the advice I'm giving, by the way. Um, but if I'm talking, I'm saying, look, if it was me, here's how I would think about it. Here's what I would probably do. Uh, you, do you do what's right for you, but that, that, this is what I would do if I was in that situation. And so what it does is it means it's not, you're not saying them what to do. You're not saying they're right or they're wrong. You should be expressing how you would view it. So your point about lithium miners, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, look, yeah, look, I haven't been, I haven't been prepared to buy lithium miners thus far because I'm just worried about, you know, there's lots of demand out there. I love that, but I'm not just not sure how supply will keep up, and whether that if when supply grows, whether that'll push the price down. Oh, it won't because of whatever. Oh, you might be right. Yeah, I'm just not sure. And so rather rather than asking them to defend their position, you you get to explain a way of saying, like, I could be wrong. I, this is why this is why I'm doing it, and I hear you. So you, you validate their view. I hear what you're saying, and you might well be right, but I'm not doing it because, or I don't think that because. And so you make it about you. Just, just it diffuses the argument a little bit. You may not change their mind. You may change their mind. You may give them something to think about. The other thing is you can't change, you can't convince everybody, right? You just can't you can't yeah. do it. Um, and so you just got to acknowledge that's the reality sometimes. Uh, sometimes people come back and say, oh, yeah, you're right. Sometimes they'll be right, and that's fine. Sometimes they'll be right for the right reasons, by the way, right? You might be wrong. I'll be wrong about stuff. I've talked on this podcast for years. I said, Andrew, we will have said things that we're wrong about, right? Um, we acknowledge that. We know that. Um, but I think by, by, by making it about you rather than about them, it lets them into the conversation about you rather than making it about them because they're, they're the ego things that we're most um, uh, protective of and, and we're less likely to listen from our own preconceptions you uh, challenge about ourselves rather than about someone else. Yep. I think we're done, mate. I think we're done after that question to Scram. Is that, is that our new? Is that our new Tomcat? Is that our new Benefer? Is that our new? Uh, what was that? What was the? What was the Jennifer Lopez one? That was that one. I can't remember that one. Probably best left alone anyway. I, I don't know. I don't know. Scram just has connotations of go away. <laughs> it does. Which maybe which maybe is appropriate. Which, which maybe a good suggestion. And on that note, on that <laughs> note, I will take the opportunity to tangentially say thanks for listening, and until next Friday, when we'll be back at the regular time. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.